Hey there, pioneers, and welcome to episode number 347. Today's episode, we are going to talk about self-sufficiency with chickens, including what it would take to breed your own Cornish crossed meat bird breeds, how hatcheries work, the impact of the bird flu or the avian flu on chickens and what that could look like or mean long-term for us, as well as other breeding aspects of heritage birds versus the Cornish cross hybrids that we're used to and all kinds of chicken talk today on the podcast. I am very excited. Not only do I have an incredible guest on, but this podcast episode is sponsored as well by McMurray Hatchery. McMurray Hatchery is a hatchery that I have used, oh goodness, way before they were ever a sponsor of the Pioneering Today podcast. And I initially tried them after I was frustrated with some other hatcheries that I had used and had horrible, horrible mortality rates. I'm talking of we got in 45 meat birds and lost over half of them the first day of arrival. They shipped me replacements, lost half of them. That happened three times from one hatchery just on one batch. And I finally only ended up with about half of the birds that I had originally ordered after multiple replacements because the chicks were so weak and just did not do well. So I had tried numerous different hatcheries throughout the years and found McMurray and have had excellent success with them, have ordered for them for a number of years, and then they came on board last year as a sponsor of the Pioneering Today podcast. So not only is Tom, it's a family-owned company, you'll get to hear more about the hatchery story in today's episode, but it was a great episode. And we also talked about hatchery practices when most people are ordering females or hens on birds and what happens within hatching is there a way to control the female to male rooster ratio and what happens when you have more male birds than you do females than people are ordering so really informative podcast episode and i think this is one that you are going to thoroughly enjoy so without further ado let's get to it Well, Tom, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm actually excited for this because I don't personally know the answers. And I get asked a ton when people find out that we are, you know, raising all of our own chicken needs for the year, both with meat birds and, of course, with our egg laying hens. And we love the Cornish cross for a lot of reasons that's our particular meat bird and i'll list i'll link to it in the show notes for this episode guys for those of you who are listening in i've got a complete podcast on meat birds and why we particularly personally like the cornish cross the best but after that the next question that i get because homesteaders we are a breed that likes to be self-sufficient is can i just breed my own cornish cross and what would i need to get started pitfalls issues and i have never attempted to do that so i have no (laughs) nothing to give them so i'm really happy that you're on here today uh and can kind of guide us if that's a road we would want to go down Mm -hmm. and if not like why not and if so like what do you need to know to be prepared if that's something that you think you want to attempt on your own yeah absolutely 
I've got some answers for this. <laughs> I, I thought you might. <laughs> Do you want me to run down how that goes like right now? Yeah. Yeah. We'll just, okay. we'll just get it. Sorry. We will get into no. the nitty gritty. Yeah. Of it. Let's yeah. do it. So, all right. So essentially in, in the grand scheme of things, the Cornish cross is a Cornish breed and a Plymouth rock breed. So your Cornish rock or your Cornish cross or whatever you call that is, is adapted from the Cornish and the Plymouth rock. They're white because white's the easiest to pluck, leaves less, less amount of feathers. But when you talk about being sustainable and producing your own crosses, there are generational lines of, of breeding that go into this Cornish cross. There are between seven and five generations before you get to this end product. And so when, if you think you're going to do that yourself, you could take a white Cornish and a white Plymouth rock and breed them together, and you're not going to get anything like the Cornish rock or the Cornish cross that is you know, what your grocery store food or what you're currently raising for meat anyway. That's because there's seven other generations of, of breeding going into this one bird. And so when the first, first time everyone's like, I want, to, I want to do that. I want to make my own so I can just be sustainable. It's like, okay, well, you know, the minimum size flock that you're going to have for each generation has got to be, you know, between 100 and 300 birds in order to keep your genetic diversity you know, high enough to be sustainable for any, you know, any term of length. So if you have, all right, so you had five generations of birds to get to this one thing, or you, you've got 10,000 birds to produce one, one chick. <laughs> so <laughs> the math doesn't work out. Like, you know, you're feeding all of these other birds and only using them as breeders and you could eat them. But then at that point, it's not, what you came here for like that's not the goal that you had in mind so it it's not it's only feasible on an industrial scale and a little industry secret secret here there's there's as few as five companies in the world that produce these cornish cross breeds really so it's like when you talk about oh i'm gonna every every grocery store in the united states is supplied you know the same bird well how do they do that well it's it's you know industrial scale like it's mind-boggling so and and that goes like i said uh, um the the genetics and the breeding and the selection and i've actually met what who's considered the, the grandfather of modern broiler and I'm, I'm gonna draw a blank on his name but chickens are just selection there is no there's no such thing as a genetically modified chicken it is hey, only selection Amen. Thank you. So, I have gotten into this with folks before who they just don't understand. And yes, I've had to go deep into this conversation <laughs> on what is even within gardening, but also, yes, as well within livestock, like what is actually GMO and genetically modification mm -hmm. versus hybrid. And so thank you. Thank you for saying that because it's a very big misconception. Yeah, within. it is. And, yeah. and when you look at those birds, you go, oh, you know, that, they've got to be modifying those. It's like, no, that's, that's selection. But every one of those genetic lines is basically infertile. So they're, they're having to, you know, the same, like if you would do cows, you'd artificially inseminate them. So you're, you know, you're collecting semen and you're inserting it into a female for them to produce fertile eggs, which you would incubate. And so, I mean, it's not a viable option for, for a home consumer to do. Um, there are other alternatives, but when I think about homesteading, 
like I, I just go back to my grandfather's farm and and that's you know we're gonna we're gonna do it ourselves and that that mentality of we're growing our own food and and they had to because that's depression era mindset that's you know this is where we're, you know we're kind of i'm not saying we're there yet but <laughs> that's the mindset that people have and that was the mindset my you know my grandfather had but the birds that they were raising were were not cornish cross they were you know leghorns and so the birds that they ate were leghorn roosters and the idea that you can have a a, a true dual purpose bird is, is kind of flawed from the beginning they it there are good examples but they fail in comparison to you know a true meat bird versus and a true egg layer you don't get both of those like it just it just doesn't exist we've we've gone so far from being able to like the the selection that's gone into these birds is only for meat and so you, you gave that up at the expense of fertility. So you're manually creating these fertile eggs to get these meat lines because you've given up all of that. So it's, it's not, it's not an option for people to, to do this. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want them to, you know, to be truly sustainable, select an egg layer flock and then select it for size. And it's not going to be a Cornish cross. You're never going to get, you know, five pounds of meat in eight weeks. You're going to get five pounds of meat in 16 weeks, but that is actually the sustainable model because you didn't have to give anything up within that chicken and within that breed to, to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does make sense. And, and it's funny when you mentioned the Great Depression, because my dad was a, a child during the Great Depression. And my mother is 20 years younger than my dad, because that's the next question that people always ask, like, <laughs> wait a minute, how old are you? <laughs> so, so I share that because yes, like they, you know, they were raising their own chickens for eggs and then they would call the roosters or, you know, that's where you get, you know, stewing hens, because yeah. once, once that hen is, is older and she stops laying, they weren't about to waste that meat, but that meat off of a laying hen, especially one that's older, as you well know, I'm sure, but it is nowhere near the tenderness. That's why it's a stewing hen only, yeah. you know? And so with the, the meat birds that we're all, most of modern society, I should say, is, is, is most familiar with, I think also adjusting expectations. Like if you were going back to say a depression era or where you are just pulling out of your flock, you know, ex, extra birds that are older, um, if you're not just purposely having her hatch out, you know, some that you're getting and you're letting mm -hmm. go longer, that, mm -hmm. Don't expect the, the same from the meat. So, you know, don't accept, expect the same breast size. Of course, yeah. you know, you know that there are some, what we call the dual purpose flocks that do have a larger breast on them than others, um, even within your laying um, breeds, but it, you, it's like apples and oranges, almost like trying to compare them. I think it's kind of similar to like taking a Jersey, hundred percent Jersey dairy cow and trying to get the same meat harvest you would get off 100% Hereford or Black Angus. It's yeah. never going to yep. be the same. So having yeah. those expectations is really key there. Yeah. And so that's, and that's, that's all of it. You know, it's like, well, it's, there are no true dual purpose if your expectation is a Cornish cross. Like, it, it's, it, there isn't. That isn't a, that's so far off of the scale of an actual viable chicken that breaks it <laughs> yeah so. 
Now, but. I do have questions for you, though, because we have only raised the Cornish cross as our meat birds. And for, for the very reason, I only want to be dealing with them for eight weeks, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's my goal. I want to be able to to get the food on them and get the largest bird that I can in an eight week period. And for our our time and everything else that we have going on. So that's very purposeful intent for this. But I do. I am curious. I have to say I'm very, very curious. So <laughs> you guys have a uh, more of a heritage line. I think is how you guys state on meat bird options. And that's, is that the freedom Rangers? Am I getting that correct? So, yeah, it's um, we have a, it's, it's the same cross as the freedom Ranger. It's Murray's big red broiler. Um, okay. So it's, it's, it's our own branding on that. It, freedom is from freedom Ranger hatchery, which is. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Uh, I really, no, I don't know. No, no, absolutely. No. <laughs> that is. And I, and I use it and I, and I tell people the first thing I say, Oh, it's a freedom ranger like it's just we we're producing this cross in, instead of you know they are so okay they have that's good marketing on their part yeah, okay yeah <laughs> sorry about that it, but it's yes, like it was. Uh, you know when people say bobcat then you mean skid steer like it's such a uh, euphemism or kleenex so it's like well do you mean tissue like they, yeah they it's did almost it. become generic now for, so for that breed. They, they did it <laughs> they did do it they did um, so so with that bird because it is still a meat bird, but it mm-hmm. goes, it does go a little bit longer. So yeah. you've got extended your labor time and of course a little bit extended feed costs. But yes. my curiosity here is the Cornish cross are, I call them little piranhas. I mean, like they <laughs> like to eat, man. Do you see this? Do you end up feeding the same amount of food because the freedom or excuse me, the, the red broilers. <laughs> I'll no, get this no, down. It's fine. It's absolute. Um, do they eat less per day, but they eat for longer. Does it end up being the same feed costs and amount, or do they truly eat more food over those extended weeks that you're feeding them? Or have you noticed that? Yeah, no, they're, they're going to eat more feed. Um, You know, it probably in some of the, the midweeks, you know, say three to five to seven weeks old, the the Cornish cross are going to eat more food than the, than the freedom ranger in comparison on a day-to-day basis. But even it's at that point, it's still pretty minimal um, in, in variation. So over the long haul, when, you know, that, that bird gets larger and grow, you know, it's eating more food per day than it would have in that week, you know, at three weeks old. Okay. So they do over the long term, they do actually end end up anymore. And then as far as, you know, butchering them at, at about 16 weeks, do you feel it like is breast size pretty comparable? Is the, the texture mm. of the meat, et cetera? Do you feel like it's a pretty side by side? It's just a longer grow out period comparison, no. or is there differences in, in the meat no. itself? There's a, there's, there's big differences. So you're not going to get the, that big breast is, is strictly a Cornish trait. And so that's why the Cornish is kind of the foundational of the, the Cornish cross. And you can find that on heritage Cornish as well. Um, we have a couple of, of other options of Cornish and it's in, it's not quite to the same proportion as, as the Cornish crosses, but that's just selection. But the, uh, the, the red Rangers are, are not going to have nearly as much breast meat, but they're going to have more dark meat where the Cornish cross doesn't have dark meat. So your, your thighs and your legs are actually bigger size. They're longer too in proportion because the Cornish don't get very tall. Right. Where, where these do, they're, you know, they're, they're more chicken-like, more upright, I should say. Mm-hmm. 
So you have longer, you know, longer grains. They are, they have more texture. I think sometimes the corners can get kind of mushy um, to say. Mm-hmm. So they're, uh, I don't want to say grainier, but they're more muscular and in, in within the legs and the thighs. Okay. They, to me, they taste better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that's, and that's, I, I think true with, for a couple of reasons, the longer, the longer that chicken lives, the more it tastes like chicken. We talked about old stewing hens. There's a really intense flavor there, but you you sacrifice the tenderness because of the time, but you you also can't get that same depth of flavor mm. in an eight week old bird. So yeah. when you make chicken noodle soup and you've got those old hens or those old roosters that you, you stewed down, you get a intense broth or okay. stock, whatever, you know, whatever you choose to make. So mm-hmm. that's the benefit of having the older birds is they do have more flavor. They taste more like chicken, more like the chicken of, of old too, that I kind of, I think so. Yeah. Um, so there, you're, there's trade-offs in, in the size of the bird. You're still probably going to end up with the same poundage, but it's going to be proportionally different. More, more thighs and legs, less breasts. Um, okay. Right. And that makes sense. It, actually, it's funny. My husband loves the dark meat. Like whenever mm-hmm. I'm cooking it, you know, turkey or anything like that, mm-hmm. he always is going for the dark meat because it does have more flavor. That's the yes. reason that he likes it. He actually yeah. prefers the texture and the flavor. So that's very interesting. It's really funny. Like, I guess I never really paid attention on the Cornish. I know that sounds so silly. I didn't even pay attention <laughs> that it wasn't dark meat, like it, you know, with the turkey. But now that you're saying that, I'm like, oh, w- we may actually like then. I might, we might test out um, doing a batch of it just for curiosity to see what we like on the flavor versus from the Cornish yeah. cross. But I am curious because you're mentioning the like the heritage Cornish versus mm-hmm. the cross. So with the heritage Cornish kind of, I guess, what are the differences going the heritage Cornish route? Is it I'm assuming it's going to be a longer grow out period, but then you do have the similarity of at least that large breast and the white feathers, et cetera. Is there any other uh, like really drastic's the wrong word, but you know, kind of drastic. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, between it's, there? it's, it's, it's so different to see a heritage Cornish. And I actually don't have a white heritage Cornish. We have, we have um, a dark Cornish, which is um, okay. laced and it's a kind of a mahogany Brown. And then we have a white laced red Cornish, which is um, kind of like a barring pattern in white and red. Uh-huh. And it, they're super pretty, but they wouldn't look like you think of, uh, you know, the Cornish roaster, Cornish Cornish broiler looks like they're very, they're tall. They're very tall, um, upright stance and they look small, the, but that's, that's all feather pattern because they have really tight bound feathers. And so they're extremely dense birds. So you pick them up and go, Oh, you know, like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. Like, and so it's, they're, they're very cool. We, we, uh, we sell a, a tremendous amount of our dark Cornish, and for people who grow them out. So you're looking, you're not looking at eight weeks. You're still looking at probably a 16 week, 18 week bird. You don't get the ease of plucking that you do with the white birds because of the, that, that does feather pattern is very tight, okay. but they're, they're very unique in stature and, and type, but you do get a big breast. So you can see that on the Cornish. So with the heritage Cornish, if somebody wanted to get those, Again, though, with going back to breeding stock, but because they are a, 
standardized or longtime heritage breeds. So traits have been stabilized within the heritage yes. Cornish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cornish. But however, even in in breeds that have been what we would or I I call in in our world, I should say, like more in the beef cattle is you know standardized. You still need to have enough genetic diversity. Yes. No matter what. So how many birds would you need in a home flock of the heritage Cornish if you wanted to have your own breeding stock and and do that? So that's a great question. Um, Typically, there there are a couple of ways to go about this. And there's um, a line breeding where you would keep, you know, three pens of birds and every you would have a specific rooster that would stay with those those pens. You could have 10, 10 hens in each one and, and one rooster. Uh, I would like to keep two just in case one fell over because that does happen. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and then theoretically, you keep all of the hens that would hatch out of that that pairing. So pairing A, all of the hens that would come off of those would go back into that block and you would keep you know, one or two roosters and you would move the rooster to the next, you know, to B line. And the same thing with, with B, all of the B hens would stay with, with the, you know, that group and you'd move the B roosters to C. Mm-hmm. And so you could continually uh, perpetuate that. I think that way, way to do that, you could get 50 years. If you had five pens, uh, they say you can, you can breed that way pretty much indefinitely without getting into too much inbreeding. Yeah, inbreeding issues. Okay. Um, and so that you know, at that point, if you look at it between thirty to fifty hens, you could perpetuate a line indefinitely. Okay. So depending um, on how much you ate for a year, or then you know, I it would be you know with neighbors yeah, or whatnot, you could, you'd be the yeah, yeah small scale. Um, if you're doing clan breeding, which is actually what we do at the hatchery, um, you you maintain one line but it's, it's a lot bigger. So at that point I have 200 hens that I will maintain in between 20 to 30 roosters. And so we don't have to mark anything, um, Mm -hmm. but that keeps the genetic diversity up because you're looking at 200 females and and 20 to 30 roosters. You, what you can run into there is not keeping enough roosters. You could have less roosters to keep fertile lines, but then you do limit your genetic diversity at that point uh, too, because of yeah. Um, not every rooster will mate the same number of females. So you'll have one really aggressive rooster that might do 50 females and he'll actually keep other males off of that. So then you've got, you're going to perpetuate that line a lot stronger than, than one that's probably only doing one to two females. So that makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. And some of them, you might have an infertile rooster, but he's keeping the other, you know, the other roosters from breeding too. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this is really, really fascinating. And you guys, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, I have a couple other things. Like I wanted to make sure that we definitely got into this because this is one of the, the number one questions that I guess get asked and had questions as well about, but with COVID and different current events i'm assuming that you guys have had a much larger influx of orders in the past couple of years is that an accurate statement um yes so we've been we've been very busy (laughs) (laughs) it's it's not unprecedented though um oh so in 2000 well avian influenza went through 
Iowa in 2015, and they killed 32 million birds in the state of Iowa wow. um, with, within that disease. And so we, we were actually busier then than we were in because of COVID in itself. Really? But, yep. Okay. That's fascinating. Um, on though on your hatchery work, because I, I think a lot of people have in their mind that, that big is never a good thing, you know, like seriously, sure. like big agriculture. And I know there's a difference between the size of your guys's hatchery and, you know, like huge uh, slaughterhouses or mm-hmm. even like huge, mm-hmm you know, where they're raising chickens for eggs and the chickens are, you know, jam packed and never yep. see daylight and all of those things. So, but I did want to ask, cause I've never been to your guys's place. So how your hatchery works, like how do you operate? How are the birds taken care of uh, those types of things? So my, my perception of big is, is different <laughs> and I'll throw <laughs> some numbers out and you go, what? Like, um, but I, I, to be honest, I think when you take yourself out of direct contact of people when like i'm i'm the president and co-owner of mcmurray hatchery um we i saw you you know this weekend yeah it we have one marketing person we have one office manager we have two hatchery managers we we all of our phone staff is in-house we have six full-time guys who who work in the hatchery and with the flocks i am accountable to every one of those people i'm accountable to every customer i think when you get to a size where you are no longer accountable to, to direct people. Mm-hmm. That's too big. That's my perception of big. <laughs> I like um, that actually, because numbers don't always tell an accurate story, which is exactly what I think the kind of the point that you were making, like yeah. number of birds, et cetera, doesn't mean yeah. so the same we, thing. So yeah, we will ship out close to 2 million birds this year. Wow. That's um, a lot of birds. All right. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I see why you led. I see why so, you led with that. <laughs> um, um, our average order is less than 25 birds um, and they go all across the United States. Well, we, we have 40,000 customers who will get birds this year. And we do that in the bulk of that in, in under four months, but then up through 10 months is our, our entire hatching season. So we have about 45,000 laying hens that we take care of. All of those are hand selected and hand culled by me or our hatchery manager. We do all of the vaccinations, all of the anything outside the day-to-day care, which just includes feeding, watering, um, cleaning pens, is all done by the six staff and our two hatchery managers. We are directly responsible for the care of these birds. And and be honest, what makes McMurray different is our team cares a lot. <laughs> And so they're, you know, they're a live animal and not just an animal, but the better take care that you take care of something, the better it takes care of us. And that goes into every facet of homesteading. Yes. Extremely true. So I, do, um, I have, yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, th- no, that's good. So I, I, my, are, are the birds all in one like large central location, like one huge barn? Do you yeah. have them in, is there different barns in different locations? And we have six, we have six farms. So we have our, we call them their, our growers, our flock owners. They're all within an hour of Webster city here and they're responsible for the day-to-day chores. They're basically just row crop farmers who had a building um, and we've kept chickens in, but that goes, goes a little bit deeper than that. 
One of our flock owners is third generation. So they've been with the hatchery for 60 years. His grandfather started with us and his dad did it. And now he's doing it and his kids are getting ready to do it. Um, We're going to set them up as a flock owner here. That's all he's ever done. Literally 45 years old. And he's only raised chickens for McMurray Hatchery and plants a couple hundred acres on the side. So one of them is a a second generation. So out of of the six farms we have, Mm -hmm. they're just people like i don't need i don't even know how to <laughs> no i appreciate it so it's not um, all factory like you have no it's very of, much not factory um yeah it, the, the closest thing to you know i would say you know a confinement type is actually the the own barns we've put up but they're not even and i only say that because we did a raised floor system on these so they're actually on slats instead of um chips like you know everyone else's chicken coop mm-hmm. is they're they're on some kind of bedding these I put slats under so we could remove the manure um, easier. The easier. We weren't worried about water spills um, or flooding because that's that's killed more birds. And I know it to my own personally too. I think I had mm-hmm. something set right and go away and come back and the water all spilled all over. So, and then like the some of the breeds we get, I I take them home and I I'll raise the I'll go buy eggs on the internet from somebody something I think is neat and I'll incubate them on my counter at home. Uh-huh. I'll brood the chicks. Uh, our Bielefelder line was perpetuated by my kids <laughs> because they liked them. Oh, um, We raised them in our backyard. And then um, once I got enough numbers built up, we could really select for the, the traits that we wanted. And that's, that's mm-hmm. exactly what we do. If I want a nice bird, I select the nice roosters. If I'm looking for eggs, I select, you know, eggs. And, and that can go different ways. We always select our breeders at the end of the year. And that actually is a very, un, not necessarily uncommon, but it's, it's unthought of way. Like when you select your eggs, when you pull your breeders from the end of your year, so your hens, the hens that are still producing eggs are the hens that are actually producing the most eggs. Okay. So they're passing that genetic ability to produce eggs and produce eggs longer into their offspring, which is the ones we select. And so we're kind of unintentionally selecting for egg laying by perpetuating the hens that are, have laid the longest. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about hybrid egg layers versus heritage egg layers, hybrids are meant to lay the most eggs in the first 18 months of their life and then kind of fizzle out. Mm-hmm. So heritage breeds are looking at more like a five to six year span to produce that's not the same number of eggs, but you know, the bulk of their eggs of their life. So you're, you know, you're at a five year um, laying ability versus a 18 month laying ability. And there's, there's caveats to both of those, but. Yeah. That's actually funny because I've heard, you know, you hear, I don't know, certain statistics thrown around or certain things thrown around and that is one of them like oh you're really only going to get you know good egg production for about two years after that once birds hit three years old it, it drops off and you might as well just pull them and you have to replace your flock but personally and it's probably because i've been getting mcmurray uh, hence for so long now, I have not noticed that. Yes, they don't lay as long each year, but I have a six-year-old mm-hmm. olive agar and she still lays very consistently in the spring for me. Now, of course, she used to go from spring all the way through, you know, until late mm-hmm. into the fall. And now that's, you know, every 
I have to say every year she's not going as far as she did, but she yep. still lays, you know, first thing in the spring for me really well. And it's funny because she's almost six years old. And so I've told people, I'm like, well, gosh, like half of my flock is going on five and six years old and they're still laying pretty consistently, not as long as, as the yeah. younger girls, but that, th- and that makes a lot of sense. And I also love, because what I was hearing is, is you guys are not, which I know because I, I have a personal relationship. I mean, I've gotten to know you and Ginger, uh, who's one of your guys' team members really well mm-hmm. throughout the years, but you are looking specifically for, for these traits. It's not like, let's just hatch every egg that we can. So we have a chicken yep. to sell and get them shipped down the road. They're you're very purposefully and intentional about what you're keeping for your breeding stock and, and what you're putting out into the world. And I really appreciate that. That uh, and and I'm that's, you know, the difference is if you the old the old um, goes back to the you know the middle McMurray. So uh, Charles McMurray was the son of the original Mary McMurray. He said if you don't want to see something, you know, you never breed that. And that that starts with that starts with the egg. So if you have visual defects on the egg, whether they have calcium spots or all of that, you know. Uh, a color that you don't, you don't even set that egg. Don't even give yourself the opportunity to go, oh, well, no, like it starts with the egg. It starts with the chick. If you are unvigorous chicks, those aren't your breeders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it, every step along the way, you, you are actively selecting for the traits that you want to see and actively calling for the traits that you don't want to see again. Yeah. Um, I- I appreciate that. You know, I do have a question for you because I think this is probably one of the other ones that I get asked a lot is that is because a lot of people don't want roosters Um, or when they're ordering birds, they want to make sure that the majority. Now, I'm the opposite when it comes to the meat birds, because I want the roosters because they get bigger faster. (laughs) But when it comes to hens, you know, ordering egg layers, I should say the majority of people want hens. They they don't want a, a big flock of roosters. So is that something that you have somewhat control over during like different, I've heard, you know, old wives tales. I don't know if they're old wives tales or not, cause I've never bred, <laughs> but like at certain temperatures will produce a male versus a female or how do you guys handle that? How does, how does yep. that work in an operation your size? Um, so there you, you get in the scheme of things, you're going to hatch out 50, 50. Um, okay. If I wanted to, I could, hatch um more males than females but so here's the deal with that you're going to get a reduced hatch overall and so this i've not actually tried to do this on any at all because i don't when when you're incubating and you what happens if you we have some kind of issue whether the power goes out which we do have generators and stuff but it can cause um we we one night we were the, the generator was um kicking on and off and on and off and off because the power in town was kicking on and off. And so one of the motors blew because of the hammering of the electrical or the surging. And, and so we had to replace that motor quick, which we have, but then the temperature and humidity get too high in the incubator. And so when you have issues in incubation and it stresses the birds, you will get more roosters to hatch than hens. Mm. And I don't know if that's a, a bigger embryo or a bigger chick, even even at day old, or why specifically that happens. But that does happen. Wow. But overall, you lose hatchability. So it's not 
it's not something I would want to try mm-hmm. um, to to do. But no, you, I can't. It's 50 50. Um, OK, so. <laughs> OK, so <laughs> that's a long story to say. <laughs> yeah, um, no. you could make you could really beat these eggs up and then you'd get more roosters. But but you're losing. I Yeah, yeah. but you're going to have beat you're, up. Yeah. Eggs, so. Yeah. So. So how do you I mean, I know you need some you're always going to need a higher hand proportion to mm-hmm. your rooster. So even within in breeding and, and whatnot. So. Yes. And I'm not trying to be like controversial or put you on the spot, but but how do you handle then the excess of roosters yep. that is more than people are ordering or more yep. than you can use in your breeding program? So we do sell quite a few roosters just because of our, our customer base. Um, but yeah, the vast majority, they they get euthanized. So, okay, um, and that's at the hatchery level here. So we we do the rec- um, American Veterinary Association's recommended. Um, we gas them. So and they get disposed of. So that's what happens. Okay. Um, well, it, thank, thank you for answering. No. I know, I know <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, it's a touchy subject for people, but I think people who are in homesteading for the long haul understand. Yeah. Understand that. And, you know, appreciate, I, at least I appreciate, and I hope I, I would assume my listeners do too appreciate, you know, actually it's knowing an and, and easy ask, thing and to answer. fix. And I'd love to be able to do it. Um, there, there is no outlet for a Polish rooster to be, I mean, like, right now, yeah. I mean, well, just, you know, they don't have any qualities, you know, they're not going to be a meat bird. They don't really like, so where some of the breeds you could find outlets for, if we grew them out, you know, there's a mm-hmm. dog food plant down the road. I could grow, you know, all of the extras roosters and sell them to the dog food plant, but like a Polish or a Sultan or a Sumatra, there, there is zero economic quality to that to that bird right and so to be honest if people have issues with how that's done then buy the roosters like <laughs> don't yeah. buy just females buy males and females and and they're just and i will happily sell them or just yeah. straight run where we don't have to sex them if we didn't have to sex them I'd save so much time. (laughs) (laughs) I bet bet you would because I, that has got to, to, and it's so funny because like, you know, every now and then you'd be like, why, you know, I ordered 25 hens and I ended up with one rooster and I'm like, it is so hard to sex them when they're that little, like that's actually really good odds. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We, we guarantee 90% and it's probably closer to 95%, but I don't really argue with people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think in all the batches I've got from you guys, I think only once have I had one rooster when it was, you know, an order of all hens, but that's on multiple and multiple and multiple orders. So I would say in my case, I guess that's 99%. So yeah, pretty high. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do have questions. So this will, this will be our wrap up. I know we could probably talk for hours. Um, I think all of this is very, very interesting and, and I'll ask you one question and then that will be get like five more is things that are happening kind of right now still in the in the world or current uh, events i should say and there is you mentioned 2015 there was avian flu in your guys's area but again we're seeing avian flu impacts i know you guys had to deal with that at one of mm-hmm. your hatcheries so if you could kind of just speak to the avian flu impact um, processes that you have to take and i know none of us can actually predict the future no matter how much some people would like to uh, do you see any based upon your previous experience from 2015, um, anything that folks who are wanting to raise chickens either for meat or hens um, should be aware of with the market that avian flu sometimes has 
an impact on mm-hmm. a little bit further down the road. Yeah. So avian influenza is primarily carried by waterfowl. And so it can live almost indefinitely in cold, wet, or frozen ground, or, you know, basically that's manure. So as they're flying over, they're dropping manure. And so that's, and 2015 was, was a little bit different than, in, uh, than, than this year. Yes, we did lose, we lost 15,000 of our breeders to an outbreak. We lost an entire farm. Um, mm. and, and that was really, really difficult for us. Yeah. Not even from a, like a monetary position, just from a personal relationship with those, with those birds. Yeah. Um, and so we're, we're rebuilding on that. We, we met a lot of very good, caring vets within the USDA. And the hardest part was like going, well, you didn't do anything wrong. And I've had to tell that to customers before, you know, and they go, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just not doing it. And it's like, well, you can do everything right and still have issues. And that was, that was, that was very much this scenario there. Uh, the flock owner didn't do anything wrong, but we, we saw increased mortality. I mean, that's the problem with avian influenza is it has like an 80% mortality rate. Mm. So you know it <laughs> yeah. when, when you have it. It's not, it's not necessarily, yes, we test for it um, as well. But even before we got the test back, yeah, I mean, I already knew what was going on. We were, we were losing birds. Um, waterfowl are really hardy. And so they don't hardly get sick for, for anything. And so they're able to pass this on to chickens and turkeys. Um, and turkeys are actually the most susceptible to almost every avian disease, um, oh. whether, yeah, so it's waterfowl, chickens, and then turkeys. Turkeys at the bottom of the keel. You look at a turkey wrong and then they can fall over. I have I've, heard that about turkeys. We've not raised turkeys yet, but I have heard that they are much harder to keep alive. Yeah, I've, I've had fine success doing my own um, and I've done everything wrong and, and managed to keep them alive, but except for the time they've roosted the neighbor's trees. Oh, <laughs> that sounds like a fun story. <laughs> they decided they liked her bird feeder better than their bird feed that I was giving them. So, and they don't come down. <laughs> oh, so well, they may not have been to the size we would have wanted. <laughs> yeah. But, and so that, that the avian influenza this year was being different than 2015 was that it was primarily spread by people. So when they went into an infected premise, they would then, Oh, we're going to go check Joe's farm. And so they'd go across the street or across the County. And then they were, people were spreading it. Um, And this year that has, has not been that we kind of thought it was a, you kind of need those reality checks with within your industry. Sometimes it didn't really affect the, like the backyard poultry at that time, as much as it affected the commercial, like the huge Mm. egg layer houses. And it's like, well, okay. You know, it's much like COVID it, even influenza has been around forever. It's, you know, seasonal cold. It just happened to be highly pathogenic strain. So it was easily mutated and it was deadly. And that was much like COVID COVID has been, you know, part of the cold cycle for generations. And it mm-hmm. just happened to be that this year was the year that it got really bad. Well, it's the same with David influenza, but this year it's, it's worldwide. It's on every continent. Um, it's affecting poultry at every level, um, backyard flocks, you know, even waterfowl, turkeys, chickens, peacocks, every, everything, even eagles, hawks, and raptors. There've been a, a increased 
sightings of dead birds of those two that have tested positive for avian influenza. Okay. So when, when you talk about what a p- person can do, any type of structure that keeps them directly covered is ideal. I mean, where you're, they're not having birds, you know, uh, perched over your, your poop. And that's hard because, you know, trees and all of that other stuff. But because of how it's spread, it's, it's affected the Midwest a lot. It's, you know, from Iowa to Minnesota, we're in the uh, migratory bird path. Mm. Actually, on both of them, they follow the Missouri River and they, and they follow the Mississippi River. And we just happen to be right smack in the middle of those. So when you look at the numbers, it follows, you know, the migratory birds and it follows them seasonally too so heightened awareness of the time of year you know spring or fall for the migratory birds is really key and then actually the number one thing and this is just good biosecurity anyway have a pair of chore shoes that you only wear you know to the chicken coop that you're not going around town or that, yeah, other people's places. Not, okay. Yes. So have having, you know, and, you know, a lot of farmers do, but then they're like, oh, I'm just going to go get a cup of coffee, you know, at, at the gas station. And well, so did five other farmers. And now, now that now you've got manure you tracked home from somebody else that. Yeah. And that's, that's just good biosecurity practices for everything. Okay. Where, where, shoes that you only wear on your farm or you're only wearing for this set chore like a pair of rubber boots something you can wash off and sanitize now and again that's the key like that that will solve so many problems for anything okay well that's good i typically do have town clothes and town shoes just because what i wear on the farm isn't necessarily yes. what i would wear in public so yeah <laughs> so this gives i'm going to tell my husband i now have permission to have you the nice to. town shoes yeah. now so all righty um <laughs> He's he's gonna love my rationalization of of going uh, actually boot shopping. I could care less about most shoes, but oh, yeah. yeah, boot shopping. Uh, anyways, that's a whole other subject. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll take us on a tangent. Well, Tom, like I said, this has been really great. Um, if we have a bunch more questions come in, we may just have to have you back for a part two. But this was really really fascinating and really exciting. And now I'm gonna have to go and take a peek as some of your guys' different meat bird breeds, because I'm, I'm very curious about testing out to just to see what we like. Think of the meat, and as you were talking about the flavor and the texture, mm-hmm. um, even if it is a longer grow-up period. I actually do have one question for you before we sign off, off here, and that is on the meat birds. We raised, got ours in the spring when we normally do, but and it was the Cornish Cross this year. We happen to have the coldest May in 50 years on record. (laughs) So normally eight weeks with the ruse, you know, I'm going to be averaging dressed out anywhere between five and six and a half pounds on average. This year, same, same feed, same growing time, but we were much, much colder, still using the heat, you know, the heat plates and the heat lamps and all the things. But I was averaging between like two and a half and I was lucky. I think I only had like out of. 40 something birds. I think I had three, four pounders. The rest were about three pounds. And I'm assuming that is just because it was colder, more the energy was going to keeping warm than it was to putting on weight. But my question for you, this whole big lead up is, do you think that any of the heritage breeds, because they grow slower, obviously, mm-hmm. that, they, that, the, that the end weight would be less affected by colder weather or that's going to be the case with any bird? Um, no, I think um, 
I, th- I think you're going to get more consistent results. So, you know, our, because of, you know, we've raised um, black Menorcas for over a hundred years. Our line of black Menorcas goes back to the, before the founding of the McMurray hatchery in 1917, they've been through every type of winter season, spring, you know? And so when you get heritage breeds, you are less affected by the, the, the variations of things, you know, okay. in temperature and time. So here's the other, here's the other thing about the Cornish cross is that because of the type of year that, that we, we had, well, all right, just two things. So <laughs> you didn't think this question was going to take that long. Um, um, when we talk about having five people in the world who do the, you know, the Cornish cross breeding every, every selection across the way, sometimes, and we saw a little bit last year, the pairings that they put together don't produce the, um, as well as expected. Mm. Does that make sense? Like you could, yeah. oh, we, we tried to do this pairing this year. And it's just like, you don't, you don't know that until after the fact, but it's such a, it's such a scale that's like, well, next year we'll try. <laughs> we don't we'll try again, do, um, <laughs> okay. but that, that affects the global market. And so you'll have people go, oh, you know, that was us too, but we were in the South and it was, and it was fine. It's like, you can get variations within the breed because of, of the lack of control in, in that, you know, nobody else gets, I don't get a say, you know, me or any other hatchery. I don't, I don't know until after the fact. Okay. So it might not have been the way it might it not have, have been, contributed, but it uh, might not have been that. Okay. Yeah. And the other part of that, because of how the spring went with avian influenza and the, um, the cold snap in Texas, and there's, there was storms over, those all have long-term effects. Um, there was tornadoes through Arkansas and Memphis and had a snowstorm year, last year. Um, so there were actually less broiler houses in production going into this year to produce those, those eggs, which I consider the, the breeder broiler flocks. And so what we saw at different times within last year and then this year as well is they were using younger birds or younger flocks that, and older flocks that you, you typically wouldn't use in an otherwise normal market. Oh, and okay. that can affect your overall bird, your bird weight. And, and the, but then again, those are, these have global repercussions across everybody's yeah. scale. So maybe yeah. you did it right. And maybe it wasn't cold and maybe, you know, there's, there's, a, there's always some options, but. Yeah. Okay. And I think that that was supposed to be our wrap up question, but now we kind of circled. <laughs> I love this. See, this is why I said we probably will just have to have another episode because I, I'm sure there's a lot more, but it kind of did bring me to, to a wrap up moment. And that is with the avian flu. And really when you have any market, I don't care what the product is, that is kind of monopolized when you only have five places mm-hmm. in the world producing something or even smaller, when something goes wrong with those places, it has drastic impact. So not as a doom and gloom or, you know, everybody panic because I, I don't believe any homes, anybody, but especially homesteaders should live with that type of mindset. Do you have any like thoughts or words of wisdom or just expectations with raising birds and getting birds within the next couple of years? based upon like what um, you, you and I just talked about yeah. and, and what you've seen previously. 
do I see anything changing? No. Do I think that's okay. still going to put the most meat on your table? Absolutely. Right. Are, do, do I have my own concerns with, you know, like I said, that monopolization of it? Yeah. But uh, chicken's the number one protein source for the world. Um, and that's not going to change. So, you know, raising, raising it yourself provides benefits that are outside of just the, the bird's livelihood, but then um, you know exactly what you put into it. And we're, so our, our, you know, everything that I'm going to do is going to try to perpetuate, continue to perpetuate these for exactly this market, you know, for yeah. exactly the homesteaders and exactly the people who want to know what they're putting into them, their body and, and how they're raised. So. Okay, great. So for those who are like, I need to get some new birds, or maybe it's our first birds or are looking at getting in any type of bird, you guys do waterfowl as well. I actually got ducks for the first time from you guys this year. However, I know that you encourage last year, I'm assuming it'd be the same this year that pre-ordering or getting orders in by a certain time so that yeah. you guys can breed accordingly to what the market <laughs> demand is. So yeah. That will be my final thing. And then I promise we will wrap up. But if you kind of could just give anybody who's looking to order from you sometime within the next year, when is the best time for them to place orders or for pre-ordering? When is that done, et cetera? Yep. So, you know, one of the reasons we, we I'm not having like buku years is because I don't change our flocks um, uh, wildly. You know, it's like counting your chickens before the hatch. So I... I watch the trends of individual breeds that we sell and I might adjust the numbers of the birds um, you know, on an individual basis. But across the board, we, we, we maintain what we consider, what we know we can, we can sell. I don't want to go, oh, you know, we had such a big year last year that like, I'm going to just scale up and, and then have stuff that I would have to throw away um, or euthanize. And so our goal is to sell everything. And so that comes in where we're pre-ordering is really important. We open up our availability for next year in November. And so you could start ordering. If you have a date that you want and a specific breed that you want, you can start November 1st for any time through October of next year. So get your, the sooner you put it in, the more likely you're going to get the time, the date you want in the, in the specific breed that you're looking for, especially for um, really in demand breeds, black copper morans that layer those really dark brown eggs. Those yes. go within the first week typically. Um, okay. So, and that's at that point, I'm guesstimating. I have the size of our flocks that we're growing for next year, but until I actually get eggs. Mm -hmm. So, there's always, we always add something later once I have eggs in house, which takes three weeks to incubate. But start in November if you have a specific timing that you would like to meet. Okay. November, December. We start hatching again in January. If you wait till Easter to get chickens for the next week, well, then you're going to have a sad day. And okay. So <laughs> November 1st is when you want to start getting in those, those orders and then popping in the dates. Doesn't mean you're going to be getting them right then, but you can get your pre-orders in for what you want and when yeah. you want. Awesome. It's kind of like seeds, you know, if you wait until it's spring to try to order your seeds and you go, well, they're out. Like, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. That know? planning head. Awesome. Ahead. Okay, great. Well, thank you so right. much and <laughs> really appreciated having you on. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thanks, Melissa.
I hope that you enjoyed that episode just as much as I did. And for links, including all the things that we talked about in today's episode, you can go to melissaknorris.com forward slash 347. MelissaKNorris.com forward slash the number, just 347, because this is episode number 347. And you will find a plethora of information there for you. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to be here back with you next week. Until then, blessings in mason jars for now, my friend. Mm-hmm.